Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience." For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Well, the people of God... The people of Israel stood at the Jordan River and they heard the report. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And Caleb said to the people, let us go up. At once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the others said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now they ought to have known, the people ought to have known what to do. God had trained them at the Red Sea. God knew, if you remember, God knew that if they saw an army before them that they would flee in fear back to Egypt, it says in Exodus 13, 17, as they were leaving the land of Egypt. Therefore, it says that he graciously put them where they would see the army behind them, but could not flee because of the sea in front of them. And I say graciously, that doesn't sound very gracious, does it? It's like, this is a trap. But it's not a trap. God put them there so that they could not act on their disobedient, unbelieving hearts, so that he could show forth his strength to them one more time, so that he could teach them the lesson they needed to know when they got to the Jordan River. And what happened in that scene in Exodus 14? Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm, See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. 
he says. And then God says, tell the people to go forward. And that sounds a little bit contradictory, right? On the one hand, stand firm. Stand firm. On the other hand, go forward. Are they to trust God? Or are they to do something? And of course, the answer is yes, right? God showed them that he could part waters and destroy armies at the Red Sea. God showed them what they were to do when they got to the Jordan, when they stood at the Red Sea. Trust God and act on his word. Stand firm in their heart, in their soul, believe on Christ that he is going to work for them, and then act on it. And then go forward in faith. As we said last week, we're always going to do something. The question is if the something we're doing is based in faith in Christ or faith in something else. But we learned at the end of Hebrews 3, it says that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so it's a warning to us today, beware of a lack of faith in Christ. Beware of lacking faith in Christ. But now we turn to chapter 4, and the emphasis turns to the other part of Psalm 95, entering the rest. And we can summarize it this way. Believe, believe and enter God's rest. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Believe and enter God's rest. It sounds simple until we have to believe. It sounds simple until we are standing at the Jordan River. It sounds simple until we see the fortified cities and the strong men and the giants in the land, right? Whatever the land is for us. You see, Caleb didn't believe. He didn't say, let's go up and occupy it because we are well able to overcome it because he thought they were so strong. In fact, he said shortly after, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land. He will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. In other words, stop trying to work out if or how you can do it. Stop trying to work out if or how you'll overcome the cities, if or how you'll overcome the giants, if or how you'll get across the, the river. Stop trying to figure all of that out. Instead, trust God and act on his word, and he will make a way as you go. But how do we do that? Because if you're like me, I'm, I'm all gung-ho on that all the way up until I'm standing in front of that river, whatever the newest river is in my life, right? You know, and I'm, I'm all about it, and I'm preaching it, and I'm preparing this sermon, and then there's a river in my life, and there's giants in the land, and there's fortified cities. And I start to go, we can, but we can't take, we can't beat them. 
I can't beat that. What can I, what could I possibly do? I think this passage gives us three marks of believing that lead into, that lead us to enter God's rest. Three marks that lead us to enter God's rest. Three things that we need to keep in our mind as we uh, stand on the edge of whatever river you're standing on right now or whatever river you'll face next week or next month or next year. The three marks are these. Fear, follow, and strive. Fear, follow, and strive. Let's look at what it says. The first mark, fear and enter rest. In verses 1 and 2, we see that it is a fear that we would fail to reach the rest. That's the kind of fear it is, that we should fear that we would fail somehow to actually enter into that rest. Don't fear the giants. Don't fear the cities. Don't fear the river. Fear that you won't actually enter into the rest that God has promised to you. Now, we think about fear only as a bad thing, right? But here it says to us specifically, let us fear. Does anyone, I mean, we grow up, we grow up, you know, with people saying, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. And, and, and of a lot of things, that is the right thing to say. But here it says, let us fear. There is a good and proper kind of fear that we ought to have, a fear that is fitting to the situation. The fear of the Lord, the word says, is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom that doesn't start with understanding God's place and God's power in comparison to us and in comparison to everything else. There is a healthy fear in Him that if we do not believe in Him, that it may seem that we fail to reach that rest. The fear is that anyone among us would seem to have failed. You see, let us, uh, in, in, in the passage it says let us, and then it says any of you indicate that the concern is not only for oneself, but also for the other people who are part of the church. The concern what, what is, is, is um, being taught to them is not only a fear for myself, but also a fear for everyone else in the church, that it would seem that they might not enter that rest. The, the expression seem to have, it, it expresses the reality that we do not have divine knowledge of the condition of someone else's heart or souls, right? I don't know exactly what's happening in your heart. All I can see is what's happening in your life, what you're doing how you're responding to things, if you're being obedient, if you're doing what God said. So it's not definitive, our lives, but it does give us an indication. And we should fear that there would be any ambiguity as to whether we trust God and obey Him. As a pastor, there's, uh, I'll tell you, there's a big difference between doing a funeral for someone whose life gave little evidence of faith in Christ and doing a funeral for someone whose life gave a consistent evidence of faith in Christ. There's a huge difference between the two. And if you've ever been to one of those funerals, you know, you felt it, you've experienced that. Now, someone might say, well, but Cody, you, technically, you, you really can never know. Like, we can really never know. And that's 
That's true. Technically, we can't. And for those whose funerals we go to who it's ambiguous, we pray that they truly did believe. Yet, we also know later in Hebrews that it will tell us the preacher will, will say that he is confident of better things for his audience. Based, based on what? Based on their lives. Based on what they did. And so, so too, when someone's life until the very end shows forth consistently confidence in the truth, holding fast to the, the confession that they gave in Jesus Christ, shows forth love for the saints, obedience to God, then we don't need to have disclaimers. We can be confident. We can be confident in that. And so the issue here in Hebrews, though, that is, just, that is addressing specifically in this passage is sort of the other side of the equation. The, the, when they're not in a casket yet and they're sitting in the pew next to you. That's what it's addressing. And it's saying what we should do with the person in the pew before they're laid in the casket. We, we ought to handle these things now. We ought to fear right now and respond right now based on that. And so the entering of the rest is based not only on hearing the good news, but having faith, it says. The wilderness generation heard the good news as well. Do you see that? For good news came to us just as to them. You see, in substance, they had the same gospel, though we have a greater and fuller revelation of it. But they feared the giants in the land more than they feared missing out on what God promised. You see, fear and faith are linked. Fear and faith are always linked. The fear of God in those who do have faith in Christ gives us confidence. It gives us confidence to obey. It gives us confidence to cross that river, to go into the land. The fear of God working properly in someone without faith leads them to a healthy fear of judgment and points them towards faith in Christ. You understand that if, that if I do not have faith in Christ, if I have a healthy fear of God as I ought, then, it, then I feel the weight of his judgment on me in such a way that it actually points me towards believing in Jesus and his grace. But the fear of other things, more than God, reveals that we're trusting in something other than Jesus. So it's, trusting, it's in the trusting of God for all the little Jordan rivers of our life that gives us reassurance for that great Jordan River that we will cross one day. And it reassures others that they will see us there when they cross that river as well. So if whatever you fear today fills you with anxiety then I would implore you to believe and enter rest. Believe and enter rest. Fear God instead. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land. And the Lord delights in His children. Now, He may not bring you into the land in the way that you think, 
He may not bring you in the land in the way that you want him to bring you into the land, right? You know, I'd love to just, you know, have a nice little uh, cruise ship boat across the Jordan River, nice pleasant stroll into the land of promise. Doesn't always work out that way. That's not always how God has it uh, planned out. But let me tell you, if you think that your ship has sailed to cross that river, I want you to know there's, there's an opportunity that still lies for you. There's an opportunity that still lies for you. And, and this is what we see in verses 3 through 5, that it's not a fear. It is not a fear that rest is no longer available. See, both the wilderness generation and these believers had heard the gospel. The wilderness generation had not believed, and so they didn't enter. But it says, we who have believed enter that rest. The point is that God's rest is still available to those who will trust Him. In Psalm 95, when it says, my rest, it is talking about God's rest. It is the same rest it says at the end of verse 3, that started at the end of the creation week. It has never concluded, verse 4. And Psalm 95 makes this clear in verse 5. It is God's rest that we're talking about, and it is God's rest that is still open to those who would believe. God's rest has been open to all who would believe since creation has been, was finished until this very day. Until today. And so if you sit here and you are breathing air still, then there's an opportunity to enter that rest today. Do not fear that it is too late for you or that you are too far off. We can't, listen, we can't go back in time. And we can't change how we acted at all the other Jordan rivers that we stood at. We can't do it. But we can enter today. We can cross today. And if it remains for some to enter, what can we do so that it does not seem that we have failed to reach it? Well, this is our second mark. Mark 2, follow and enter rest. Not only fear and interest, but follow and interest. Now, following, it's a following that hears and believes the good news Today, we see this in verses 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Enter that rest having established that the opportunity still stands, just as it did before. The argument advances this one more step. The basis for them not entering was disobedience. They would not obey the command to enter. They were not convinced of God's promises. They did not believe His word. They didn't believe His good news. But do not miss the good, the, 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 the good news of God's grace here. The other side of that is true as well. Those who do believe and who do obey His word, they will enter. Not to cross a, you know, a, 
a Jordan that's a, you know, a, a geographical location on the globe. But what that foreshadowed. You see, their disobedience in history showed forth their disbelief in God. But it, is also, it also shows forth that there is an opportunity to enter the true rest that that promised land represented. And since the psalm uses the word today, then we have the opportunity to do what they refused to do. So don't refuse it like they did. Hear the voice of God. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ and believe. Believe and act on that faith by following Jesus. This is how you believe. This is how you hear the word and believe. It is by following Christ. In fact, it's by following the greater Joshua into the greater rest. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 10. Follow the greater Joshua. You see in the Greek, the word, uh, the name Joshua here and the name Jesus in the Greek is the exact same word. It's the exact same word in the Greek. The only way that you can know whether it's supposed to be Joshua or Jesus is just based on the context. And here I think our, uh, inter- our uh, uh, translators of the ESV got this right. I think it's intended to be Joshua. And yet, I also think that there's an intention to have a little bit of a play on words here that, that we miss because we're reading it in English instead of reading it in Greek. That there's actually supposed to be a play on words that if they trusted God and if they followed Joshua into the promised land, then they were following Jesus in their own way as they believed in God. But Joshua was a precursor. And now we know Jesus more directly and now we follow him more directly. And the rest that Joshua gave was this rest from their enemies on all, his, on their, all their sides. But But now we look forward to the true rest. That 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 rest that, that Joshua gave them, even that rest for them in the promised land, was not the true rest. It was not the fullness of what it was. And now we look to that fullness and we follow Christ into it if we believe and follow him. He will lead us into greater rest. And this rest, it says, is a Sabbath rest. Now, now here's something interesting it's trans, it, it, you see Sabbath rest here instead of rest because it's actually a very different word. Suddenly, the, the writer of Hebrews switched words on us. And he uses a word that's unique. In fact, they believe that this is the, first, this is the earliest use of the word ever in Greek. They found no other place where it's used earlier than the writing of Hebrews. And it's, it is a unique noun version of of a verb that existed that means to celebrate the Sabbath with praise. And so it gives this sense of an event of a of a a person, place, or thing that is that is a a festive joy and thinks thankfulness to God. It seems though it's bringing together a few different ideas. It's uniting the idea of rest and the idea of Sabbath. And we see that in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. If you, I don't imagine that you remember. Well, maybe if you're in the Bible reading, you might remember what's in Leviticus 16, because I think it was just this last week. But it is that, uh, the instructions for the Day of Atonement and the time in which they were to rest it calls it a Sabbath of rest. And they were to deny themselves and not do any work and celebrate what was happening on the Day of Atonement. 
the atoning of their sins. And then you also see in the Old Testament, Sabbath and rest uh, being tied to two events. First, it's tied to the seventh day of God's creative work. And then it's also tied to remembering and rejoicing in God's deliverance of the people in the Exodus. And so what we see here is Jesus bringing these things together. The Day of Atonement, Jesus being the true atonement, the, the, um, cre- the creative work of God and the, versus the recreative work of Jesus. The deliverance of the people from Exodus and the deliverance of us from our slavery to sin. And in Christ, all of these things come together. And so it seems that the point here is that even for the people of God who entered the promised land, even for them there was a greater fulfillment. And therefore... It's not a rest that was entered into back then with Joshua, and now it's done, it's over with, but it's a rest that we today can still enter, that we today can have this Sabbath rest of the people of God. I think this is ultimately realized in that day that's Described in Revelation chapter 14, verses 12 through 13, it says there, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I hear a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So there's a a day when we will rest from our labors in the fullest sense. When we will no longer need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we will possess that inheritance in its fullness. That time when the delight of our weekly Sabbath will become an ongoing and a full reality. But until then, we understand that our rest is as God's rest was, which is not precisely a matter of inactivity, is it? It's not precisely a matter of activity versus inactivity because what we see in Scripture is that God rested from creation, but yet He works in it today. And what we see is that Christ rested from His atoning work, and yet He works in us today, and He intercedes for us today. And we rest in Christ, from our works righteousness, and yet we still work in faith. We believe and enter. We trust and move forward. And so we come to our third mark, strive and enter rest. Strive and enter that rest. Strive is interesting. This, this, I think, is the verse where you're reading along and you're like, okay, I think I get it. And you read this verse and you're like, wait a second, what? Strive and enter rest? That seems contradictory. Strive here can mean to work hard, to apply oneself diligently, to do one's best. To what extent are we to fear not having rest and believe in Christ? Well, We're to strive to trust God in every area of our life. We're to apply ourselves totally, totally, diligently, to do our best in it. To what extent are we to seek to follow Christ 
into that rest? Well, we're to strive to follow Christ in every area of our life, in every way. But rest does not come from having faith and ceasing works. Rest does not come from having faith, saying, okay, I've got faith, now I can cease to do works. That would amount to faith in our faith, not faith in Christ. You see what I'm saying? Like if I, if I said, okay, I have faith, and now I don't need to do anything, well, that's faith in my faith, because faith in Christ is I trust God and I follow Christ. And I don't want to have faith in my faith. Because my faith is shaky sometimes. I want to have faith in Christ because he's faithful all the time. Rest, rather here, God's rest is the application of our faith in Christ to our lives and work. You see, if we rightly fear God, not other things, it points us toward faith in him. And for, for, for believers, if we continue in the fear of God, we know that we no longer stand condemned. We, uh, uh, we no longer stand kept out of the promised land, right? And that never produces apathy. True faith never produces apathy, but rather courage to follow Christ today. And that courage begins as we do that. It begins to relieve the stress and the burden and the anxiety. And it begins to replace it with the peace of Christ in our lives. Not that there's peace around us in our lives, right? And we, we still live in a world that's rife with sin that creates all sorts of problems. But we have the peace of Christ in that. But it is not a peace first and then obedience second. It was obey and cross, and then I will give you peace from your enemies on every side. It was obey, believe, believe God's word, obey, cross the Jordan River, follow Joshua in, and then I will give you peace on every side from your enemies. It was not, I'll give you peace on every side, and and then you'll feel nice and comfortable as you enter into the land. But oftentimes that's how we live our lives, right? Oftentimes that's what we, when we're on our knees praying, that's what we ask God. Just give me, give me an easy route and then I'll trust you. Explain all the details and then I'll follow you. That's not how it works. That's not even how it worked for Joshua. Do you remember the beginning of the book of Joshua? God says to him, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. His courage was to come not from knowing what the plan was, but from knowing that God was with him. The very fact that God had to say to him, strong, be strong and courageous, not once, mind you, twice at least, shows that he was not internally feeling real confident, right? That he was not like, you know, I'm just feeling like super, like I got this. No, it shows that he needed 
courage from the Lord. He needed to be courageous and do it first. If they needed reminded to act courageously, then that meant that they didn't feel courageously. And too often we allow our feelings to be excuses for our disobedience. Well, if I just felt better about that, then I would have done it. If I just didn't have so much fear, then I would have. If I didn't, if. How you feel about it is not justification for disobeying God. It's not. In fact, all that that's going on, that might be the very stew that God has put you in just so that you would trust Him instead of trusting other things. We often think, I need to fix my feelings, then I can obey God. When God says, obey me, and then I will fix your feelings. We get it backwards. The fear of the Lord leads us to obey Him even when we fear other things at the same time. Listen, when you're at the edge of that river, whatever that river is for you, whatever's coming to your mind when you think about it, whatever that is, I want you to know you will probably still feel fear. Almost assuredly you will. Or else God's not leading you into new and greater things for His kingdom. Will you trust God? Verses 12 through 13 Sort of the, the ending here in this great passage that often gets quoted about God's Word, and, and, and perhaps we could kind of detach it from the context, but I want to try to help us uh, figure out what does it mean in this passage, what is it trying to tell us here about what he's saying right here in chapter Four. So verses 12 through 13, I think, are a, a unique weaving of concepts related to the Word of God in Scripture and the Word incarnate in Jesus Christ. And those are often connected in God's Word, right? You, you are not, uh, we don't follow Christ and not follow God's Word. If you're following Christ, then you'll be following God's Word, right? And if you want to know how Jesus is going to judge you, then read God's Word and it will tell you by what standard He's going to judge you. You can know right there what it is. So let me explain a little bit, try to explain briefly what it's, I think it's describing and why it matters for this striving to enter the rest that it's talking about here. You see, the word it says is living and active. It's not like our words, which depend on others' responses to be fulfilled. My words fall to the ground sometimes, right? You, come on, call them parents, you know, like you're talking to your kids. Sometimes your words fall to the ground. All right? But God's word never does. Even if we try to ignore God's word, it will do precisely what it says. God's word created everything from nothing. Just stop for a second and think about that. God's word created everything from nothing. Therefore, it needs nothing to fulfill whatever it says, because that's how it started. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. You can not believe it all day. You can deny it all day, and it is still true. Heaven and earth, it says, will pass away before it does. And it's the sharpest of sharp swords, it says. Like, like the sword which Revelation says comes out of the very mouth of Jesus. And it's able to pierce to the deepest places, 
to sort out every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our being, to separate what seems to us inseparable. It's like a knife in the hand of the high priest, chopping us apart as living sacrifices and offering us to God. You thought you could keep that part of your life for yourself and not offer it as a whole living sacrifice to God? You can't because the knife is in the hand of the high priest and he will use it to chop you apart. He will cut all the way to to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. With Christ, it will be all. There will be none. The word judges our thoughts and intentions of our heart. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves. We can think our heart was wanting this, but really it was wanting that. And we can go on believing that for a long time until all of a sudden you're reading God's word and you realize, nope, I was wrong and you were right. It's not just our actions but our motivations that God's word cuts to. Not just whether our lives go astray, but whether our hearts go astray. We may not see it, but the spirit-guided word is able to find it. No one is hidden from Christ. No one, nothing is hidden from his eyes. We are all naked and exposed just like Adam and Eve before us. We will give an account for everything. And honestly, like this passage sort of ends a little bit chilling, does it not? Next week, we'll get into more of the hope we have in the face of this. But right now, what we have is this. Therefore, strive for faith and obedience in every area of life. Strive not, striving is not doing nothing because the word judges your actions. Striving is also not doing alone because the word judges your heart. God's word, friends, is a word of promise, and it is a word of judgment. But as as he said already earlier, we have, in chapter 2, we have a faithful high priest. But that word is in the mouth, and that word is in the hand of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe who died on the cross for us. And if we have faith in Christ, that doesn't mean he's not going to use that knife to divide soul and spirit and joint and marrow. He will. But he does it in love for us. He does it in promise and not in judgment. He does it because he's rearranging the things in your life that need to be rearranged for your good so that you can enter into his rest. That's what he's doing. But if you don't have faith in Christ, there's a different outcome. I don't know if you remember this story. 
is part of the story. But after they refused to enter into the promised land, and Moses said, now, because you refuse to believe, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, one year for every day they were in the, in the land that God had given. You're going to wander for 40 years before, and all of you are going to die in the wilderness, and your kids are going to grow up, and your kids are going to go into the land because I'm faithful to keep my promises to my people. And all the people said, mourned. And they said, oh, we're, we're so foolish. We're sinful. Why did we not believe? And they said, we'll, the next morning they said, okay, Moses, we'll go up. We'll go into the land. We'll do it. And Moses said, don't do it. Don't do it. God said, no. And it says they didn't follow Moses and they didn't take the ark of the presence of the Lord, but they decided, well, we'll just go in anyways. And they were slaughtered by the people in the land. The word is a word of promise or it's a word of judgment. Will you believe in Christ or will you not? They presumed to go up, and they were defeated. At first, they lacked faith and disobeyed God's word and would not go in. Then they lacked faith and disobeyed God's word and went in. But the heart is not what they were doing. The heart of the matter is whether they believed God and did whatever he said. As we walk through the desert of our life, it can often feel like we are more or less following Jesus, just as that generation followed Moses. But it, it is at certain critical moments when the, their desires or their fears came into competition with trusting God and obeying that the true nature of their unbelieving hearts came forth. And it is at particular moments when the desires of your heart and when the fears of your life uh, come forth and you're standing at the river and you have to decide, that's when you find out whether your heart is believing in that area of your life or whether it's not. And at that point, that's when God inserts his word and he goes, okay, here it is. I've brought you face to face with your unbelief. Will you believe and enter today? We say we want to hear God's word preached. We say we want to hear God's word preached. We want to read God's word. We want to apply God's word. But do we want to apply it to all of life? What happens when it touches on that area of desire or that area of fear? I say I want to preach God's word. But what happens when it hits my fears? Will I do it or will I not? Caleb said, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do you believe God's rest flows with milk and honey? Do you believe it's a good land worth getting into? Do you fear not entering it? Have you seen him part the seas and destroy armies before in your life? Do you not believe he will do it again? Do you fear what risk it may be to your life, your pleasures, your comforts, if you trust God and follow Jesus in that area of your life? Or do you fear what happens if you don't trust God in that area of your life? You may know that 
that for many people who, who believe in Christ, that their marriage flows with milk and honey, but you are afraid to cross that Jordan River, whatever that is that's keeping you from that. You're afraid to trust God with your marriage. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Will you believe and enter that rest? You may feel anxiety. Uh, you may have a grumbling in your heart. You may be struggling to believe God in some area of your life. And you, I know that, that for some people, God can bring that into a land of milk and honey. But for me, ah, this is just too difficult. Will you trust God? Will you believe? And will you enter into his rest there? You may look around the people in your life who don't believe in Christ and you may, you may say, I know that God brings some people into salvation, into that land that's flowing with milk and honey, but I just don't think that when I share the gospel with them, it's just too scary. I'm not sure. I just can't cross this river. Will you believe and enter God's rest? In what area of your life are you striving? What area of your life are you not striving? To enter God's rest. Believe and enter it. Maybe you say to yourself, I believe God's promise of eternal life, but right now, in this area or in that of my, of my life, rather than obeying God's word, I'm going to look to that, or I'm going to look to that, or I'm going to look to that instead. Stop it. Believe and enter God's rest. Maybe you agree Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you agree that he did what he said he did, but you just feel stuck at the water's edge. Just not quite able, not quite in. Friends, believe. Believe and enter that rest. Let's pray.